This is Mornings with Simi. As if there aren't already enough questions about the RCMP's conduct and what happened during that Nova Scotia massacre two years ago. Now there are even more, this time about the conduct of the RCMP commissioner and whether information about that mass shooting is being politicized. Our next guest is going to tell us all about this. Greg Mercer joins us now, our Globe and Mail Atlantic Canada reporter who has joined us before to talk about this story. Good morning, Greg. Morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being back with us. Can you explain to us what, how did the RCMP commissioner now get drawn into this situation? So this came to light this week as part of the public inquiry looking at, at this mass shooting. Um, what this inquiry is doing is it's unearthing a lot of uh, documents, including some senior officers' handwritten notes. So what we, we were, were given publicly this week was notes from them. A Nova Scotia superintendent who described a meeting that happened 10 days after the mass shooting in which the, the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, they the Nova Scotia RCMP for not revealing details about the, the guns used in the attack because she expressed to them that those details were important to advance the Liberals' gun control agenda. She actually said that? She, she made that link very clear. She said, she said, this is important, uh, important issue of public safety, and we need, we need people to understand that these are the types of guns that are uh, going to be targeted in, in, the, um, uh, in the pending legislation coming the following month. So she drew that link very clearly. Wow. Okay. So then now what has been the reaction here? Is she going to be testifying too? So not as part of the inquiry, but of course, MPs in Ottawa this week voted to hold a hearing next month, and there are calls for her to be uh, forced to testify under oath as part of that proceeding to, to clarify exactly what she was doing and what she was trying, um, you know, what she was hoping to get by calling this meeting and, and applying pressure, you know, to a police investigation, which is, of course, supposed to be independent from political interference. Yeah, exactly. So what has been the kind of political reaction to this? Was she speaking to government ministers? Like, what has the government had to say? So, of course, the, you know, their, their line is like, no, we would never interfere with police investigation. You know, this was a national uh, issue and we were concerned, but, you know, we did not interfere with the police investigation. Certainly, the, the, the senior Nova Scotia commander uh, did feel like it was interference. And he wrote that in his handwritten notes, which are, are now public, saying, I was concerned. We, we were in the middle of a police investigation. They were pressuring us to share information before we were ready. Um, and he made a note of it. So, and it's also worth noting that he didn't do this to, to um, you know, to expose the commissioner. He, he, this, these were private notes he never intended to share. He was forced to share them as part of the inquiry. So I think it adds credibility uh, to the concern of, of, uh, that people are having this week. Yes, no kidding. All these questions then about RCAP conduct. And when it comes to the hearing this week, what else have we heard about the situation uh, of the shooting, right? Because the whole point of this hearing or these, this, these, this testimony was to talk about what happened during that mass shooting, that two days over which that occurred. Yeah, well, I mean, we're getting a, a more a clearer picture of, of the many, many missteps and mistakes by police in their response. Just you know, hesitation, lack of org- or organization, you know, lack of clarity around who was in charge, lack of training, you know, and, and, and there are a lot of people in Nova Scotia who feel that the RCMP, frankly, um, contributed to the, the death toll, that especially on the second day of this attack, had they been more organized, um, there would have been fewer people killed. And that includes even just how they communicated with the public. 
There was a lot of information they withheld and did not share publicly about the gunman, about the vehicle he was driving. And that's, that's caused a lot of concern for people in the province. From what I understand as well, Greg, like there was confusion, it seems like, at the scene about who was actually in charge. And there were all these senior officers there who didn't think that they were the ones who were actually in charge. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this with each passing week, we're getting a clear picture of just how badly disorganized the response was. I mean, there was one officer who, who had phoned into his colleagues and said, I've been drinking. I've had four or five rum drinks. I'm in no shape to to participate. And then an hour later, he's inserted himself in the police response, and he's directing officers, making critical decisions that, in hindsight, we now were the wrong decisions, you know, offering contradictory, um, you know, directions. So the officers on the ground say it was very confusing to know who was in charge and who we should listen to. Wow, Greg, has it become apparent that there was a lot of stuff here about the way the RCMP works that they clearly, they need to work on, but this is probably why they didn't want to have this hearing to begin with. Yeah, I, I think most definitely. I think this does not look good on the RCMP. I think they have been badly hurt by this inquiry in terms of their image in Nova Scotia. I think a lot of people in that province have lost faith in the RCMP. I mean, this has exposed the RCMP um, to a lot of criticism. You know, at a time when people needed them the most, they look the worst, and uh, I don't know how they recover from that. Yeah, how have the families been? I know they've been upset at different parts of this inquiry about the process and how it was happening. What's it been like for them the last couple of weeks? I mean, they've been frustrated. There have been moments where senior RCP officers have not have been have been spared from cross examination, which is one of the things that was very important to these families who lost loved ones in this attack. I mean, twenty two people were killed. There's a lot of victims here. Um, but some of the senior RCMP have not had to face cross-examination because the commission running the inquiry was concerned about re-traumatizing them. So you can appreciate that that decision has angered the families who want to get to the bottom of police mistakes. Yeah, I can certainly appreciate that. Listen, Greg, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for explaining all that to us. That's Greg Mercer, who's the Globe and Mail Atlantic Canada reporter, talking about the inquiry that's going on in Nova Scotia. And of course, it's talking about what happened in Nova Scotia with the mass shooting two years ago. But now it's also moved to the hallways in Ottawa, too, because it sounds like MPs are going to be holding a hearing and this will come next month. So in July, and these hearings will have to do with what Greg was just talking about, allegations that the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, tried to put pressure on other RCMP officers investigating the mass shooting situation to help advance the gun control agenda in Ottawa. These no, I mean, this, the twists and turns of this story, you know, are just unbelievable. So now it's going to be turning to Ottawa. And so at the request of the Liberal government, MPs are going to hold a hearing on this. And all of this just erupted uh, this week with the notes that Greg was mentioning there that came up in the testimony. And you know what? What's going on in Nova Scotia with this inquiry and how it's impacting, you know, the RCMP's reputation there, it very much reminds me of, of what we went through here in BC with the Braidwood inquiry. And that was dealing with the death of Robert Jakansky out at, out at Vancouver International Airport. And if you remember the conduct, just all of the conduct of those four RCMP officers, the video that came out that contradicted what they had been saying, and then everything that happened after that with the perjury, and, and it just really shook people's kind of faith in the institution of the RCMP. It really changed how people viewed that force in this province. And you can see that kind of happening in Nova Scotia, understandably so, given what people in that province have, have been through in the last couple of years. And we will 
as always, continue to follow that story, especially now that it's getting even more headlines with these allegations involving the commissioner of the RCMP allegedly trying to use this situation to advance a gun control agenda. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the city of Vancouver is trying to love the nightlife in our city, trying to actually boost things up a little bit. That was the announcement yesterday by saying the city will be getting its own version of what's called a night mayor. This was an announcement by Mayor Kennedy Stewart, uh, reps from the downtown businesses and hospitality tourism sector. The office is going to be called the Office for Nighttime Economy. It's like a single point of contact for Vancouver's tourism, hospitality, arts and culture sectors to talk about kind of nightlife initiatives. Now, do we need something like this? Well, let's talk to Jeff Guinard about that. He's the executive director of Able BC. That's BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. First of all, how's business? Oh, you know, it's uh, it's challenging out there. But the good news is we're seeing, since the pandemic restrictions have all kind of ended, lots of lots of customers are coming back. Lots of people are comfortable coming out again. Our issue, honestly, is just uh, getting staff to work the place. There's a massive labor shortage in our industry and, and others. And it's, it's really impacting our ability to put our best foot forward. But overall, business is going fairly well. Okay. So does that mean like reducing hours, maybe? Like how are businesses adjusting to that? Yeah, what you typically see is, you know, we've got to reduce hours. We'll end up having, you know, you go to a restaurant or a pub and you see half the place looks empty, but we're telling you we can't seat you because we don't have the kitchen staff or the staff to serve you. And sort of the situation where we'd rather you come back later when we have more space and say you're going to have to wait two hours to get a to meal or something. You see some places having to shrink your menu a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes they're closed for lunch service, things like that, which are really quite frustrating for the owners who are trying to trying to rebuild after all the COVID losses. Right, uh, but it's it's a big challenge, and um, I'll put it this way: we in in the, the before times, our industry employed about one hundred and ninety thousand workers, and right now we're about thirty thousand workers short of that. So it's it's uh, well, yeah, we're asking for folks to be really patient when you go out, and um, we're we're going to take some time to rebuild. So, given that, then do we have the ability to boost nighttime entertainment in this city? Do we even have the people to do this? Yeah, so yesterday's announcement was actually really exciting for industry. And I'll say this has been years in the making. And uh, I, I really appreciate the, the vision and leadership uh, from Mayor Stewart on this. And he, he listened to industry. We've been asking for this for a long time, saw the you know potential of what we're trying to do here, and then took some concrete action. So this new office of the nightmare, uh, it, it's based on successful models in other jurisdictions, right? They do this in Amsterdam, they do it in London, they do it in New York, places that you identify with having a vibrant amazing nightline. And it's about building and fostering a real 24-7 city. So yes, we're still going to have issues with staff. Um, but it, you know, this is really about, as, as a friend of mine put it, you know, the, the other nine to five, not the business crowd going out nine to five. It's, it's who goes out late at night and stays out throughout there. Okay. And, so well, I'm just I'm curious about well, what does it mean though? Like how can yeah. this office make a difference? Yeah. So the first thing I think you have to know is Vancouver's nighttime economy contributes three quarters of a billion dollars to our economy every year. And we employ tens of thousands of people. Folks who work in that industry, I think, have felt like we've been a bit taken for granted or, you know, some residents just view it as as an inconvenience. What this office will help us do is build a real vision of what we want our nighttime economy to be. Right. So a lot of folks just think of it as nightclubs, but it's not nightclubs are not just nightclubs, it's also festivals and art installations and concerts and cultural events. In in Amsterdam, for example, they had a sort of an abandoned building downtown that wasn't being used for a while but was being redeveloped. They turned it into a space for artists 
to kind of produce art over the course of the evening. Uh, and then they had folks tour it, and it became a place where people would dance and people would connect. The nighttime economy ends up being the heartbeat of a city, right? It's where culture and community are created and thrive. So this office is about coordinating those activities. It's about putting you know, the nightlife on city council's agenda so that politicians and you know, society at large can understand what that nighttime economy is about, what it contributes. We can explore ways to stimulate it and build it in a way that's diverse and socially inclusive so that it works for the, all the people of Vancouver. And in other jurisdictions where they've done this, it's led to massive economic development and really enrich the cultures in the city. So that, that's why we're quite excited about it. Right. Is this something, um, is, is this going to require an attitude shift, do you think? Like, is this a big change for Vancouver? Yeah, that's, that's an astute way of thinking of it because it, it does lead to an attitude shift where you now have somebody who goes to city council, who's met with everyone in industry, who's met with residents and can speak on behalf of that other nine to five. Otherwise, it's just not even anyone's thought process, right? I mean, you, city council spend time talking about, you know, garbage collection or, you know, the Broadway plan or all things that are necessary for the city. But that's only that's only half of the city's day. We are a 24-7 city. We're already doing it, right? We're already contributing $750 million a year from a nighttime economy. So we can double that if we bring the right focus to it. And we have politicians thinking about it. And we have residents thinking about it as well. So, so it's, it is a bit of an attitude shift. Uh, and this is the first step. Now, this, this office is only going to exist um, it's a, kind of a temporary initiative for the next six months. Um, and you know, that'll take us after the next municipal election. So that's when we're really hoping it will be a permanent structure. Because, you know, this is not just you know, Mayor Stewart's initiative. This is a, a joint initiative through Destination Vancouver, the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association, Hospitality Vancouver, so the liquor licensees and other you know, entertainment venues, as well as the city. Right? So this is definitely the right way forward. Okay, so that is this something that you think people have been wanting for a long time? Like, how has the industry been managing? Has it been hampered? Have there been things that haven't happened because we don't have this kind of focus on it? Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, it took us years to get, you know, some simple policies passed through where, you know, we've got things like in Vancouver, we had a very strange occupancy calculation mode. So you would find if you had the exact same you know, licensed establishment opened in Kelowna or Kamloops or Victoria, your occupancy could be, you know, X. But in Vancouver, it was, you know, 75% of that. And there was no real logic for it, right? But it took a long time to get council's attention, to get it onto the agenda and have the mayor help change that kind of policy. These are the things that a nightmare would be able to help deal with constantly, right? And uh, can be the link between, well, adding up patio cultures and changing occupancy loads and harmonizing closing hours at bars and building in the right kind of festivals and the right tourism activities to say, hey, we can also do tourism things in the evening and at night. We can launch things at 10 p.m. or midnight instead, uh, and people will show up to that. So it's about, yeah, and it's about going out and making sure that as we do all that, we're doing the work of speaking with residents and local entrepreneurs and politicians to build it all together. So right. Is policing, we've seen this work. is policing a part of that as well? Because obviously you're going to need a little extra help at nighttime then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And in other jurisdictions where they do that, the police are partners right from the beginning. And we feel very comfortable with that. I mean, we, we have a partnership with the Vancouver Police Department through, through our Bar Watch program, which, which helps get organized crime out of bars and, and nightclubs you know, over a decade ago. Uh, back when you know you can we had gang wars in downtown Vancouver and you'd end up with rival gangs sitting across from each other in a bar and we, we had no idea right we're just serving customers we don't know who's right and the police really helped us um, build a, a good partnership to get to make that happen so yeah this is also about building it safely you know inclusively in a way that works for everybody 
Uh, but you can only do that when you have someone whose job it is to start thinking about these kind of questions and make sure we build those kind of relationships. So it's, it is it is really quite exciting. And I, I think you know the, the easiest measure of success that I can think of is every other jurisdiction that has done this has not regretted it. They've come away seeing that as a vital component of what stimulates the nighttime economy. And that's what we wanted to hear in Vancouver as well. All right, we'll see how it works. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's Jeff Guinard, who's the executive director of Able BC. That's BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. They, as you heard, love this idea of boosting Vancouver's nighttime economy. The fact that they're even creating an office for nighttime economy shows you that there is a commitment, you know, from different sectors to get this done. Wondering what you think about this. Does Vancouver need something like this, the way Jeff just described it? Simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Historic news out of the United States this morning. The Supreme Court in that country has officially overruled Roe versus Wade that eliminates the federal constitutional right to an abortion after almost 50 years. This decision will have huge repercussions. Joining us now for more on this is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what do we know about this decision? So we know the decision uh, was backed by the right-leaning majority uh, of the court. The Chief Justice, John Roberts, didn't join in the majority, but he did write a concurring opinion um, that he wouldn't have overturned Roe, but instead would have just upheld um, the law that, or at least the case that had brought this to the Supreme Court, uh, which was Mississippi uh, trying to ban abortions, um, you know, before fetal viability and at 15 weeks. But nonetheless, the fact that this was something that, um, you know, it, it follows in line with the uh, leaked draft from Justice Alito that came out earlier uh, earlier this year. Um, this, this is simply just a a, a remarkable moment in uh, American history where a Supreme Court has overturned precedent and actually taken away rights from the majority of Americans. I guess, and what's interesting, you mentioned the leaked draft there that came out a couple of months ago. Even though at the time everybody was saying, "Oh, this is just a draft. This is just a draft." This is essentially that draft. This is essentially that draft. Um, and, and, you know, the writing was on the wall, but, but semi realistically, the writing has been on the wall for the last several years. Uh, when we saw Brett Kavanaugh uh, during his uh, nomination hearings, when we saw Amy Coney Barrett, both Trump nominees to the Supreme Court, both of them were asked, um, outright, what will you do if Roe finds itself before, uh, the bench? Um, you know, the answers were very legal and very, um, cautious. Uh, and there was no guarantee that this was not going to be overturned. And then when we saw this leaked memo from Samuel Alito earlier this year saying that, look, this is what's going to happen. This country sat on edge. Uh, and here we are now, uh, you know, waiting to see when these so-called trigger law states are going to jump. Um, you know, many of them are going to outright ban this procedure sometime in the next 30 days. Yeah. What are the repercussions here? So what happens next? Well, I mean, some of these states are going to to act quickly. In some of these trigger law states, there's 13 of them. Uh, their their highest um, uh, uh, legal person in the state, the attorney general, is going to confirm the um, the the decision that was handed out by the Supreme Court today, and then that will start the clock and will likely make it illegal to get an abortion in one of those states, like Tennessee, uh, in the next 30 days. There are other states though that are going to do things like making it illegal for someone to assist somebody else by getting them an abortion in another state. So this is going to almost be a legal civil war from state to state now, uh, as ones that are that are anti-abortion uh, or against abortion are really 
really going to do what they can to ensure that people in their state do not um, have an ability to get that procedure. But more so, this is going to impact uh, low-income women. It is going to impact women uh, of color, especially in states that ban this, because it will make it that much more difficult for these women to be able to obtain a procedure and make a decision about their own health because they are being weighed down now by their state government. What does this do for the upcoming midterm elections? I think Democrats are going to take this and run. Look, this was already going to be a, a front um, top line item for Democrats when this leaked document came out. Then issues surrounding mass uh, shootings and guns kind of moved it to the side but didn't take away uh, its importance. Now that this has happened, Democrats are going to run. Is it going to be enough to potentially stave off any kind of massive loss with the Democrats later this year. That's still to be seen. But since they're in control right now, the only way that this can possibly go in a different direction is if Congress were to act uh, and to make a law that says that abortion is legal. They tried that once. It didn't work. It was held up by Republicans. So this is going to be a Democratic fight now to go to the American public to say, if you want your rights back, the Supreme Court is not on your side. You need to put politicians in place that will act for you. I guess so. We're going to be hearing a lot more about this. Reggie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini is our Global News Washington correspondent. He'll have a busy morning because of this U.S. Supreme Court decision, which broke just about half an hour or so ago. They made it official. They have overturned Roe versus Wade. That eliminates the constitutional right to abortion after almost 50 years. And yes, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, didn't they already announce this? Well, no, a couple of months ago, what happened was a a leaked opinion, a a draft opinion had come out, something that the court was working on. And at the time, you heard voices of people saying, oh, you know what, it's just a draft. This isn't what the final thing will look like. It's not going to be like this, except this morning with the opinion actually coming out, it is very much like that leaked draft opinion from a few months ago. And this dramatically changes even the political landscape, but more importantly, the actual landscape for women and people in the United States who were looking for abortion access. It will change from state to state now. So lots of developments on that front. Keep it tuned in here for the very latest. This is Mornings with Simi. It is now time again for our farming series called Keep It Local. We're trying to highlight local farms and producers to help you find ways to keep it local when spending your hard-earned money on produce and other products, for instance, like meat. If you're a meat eater, there are ways for you to connect more with the people who produce that for you too. Joining us now, Julia Smith is president of the Small Scale Meat Producers Association, also a farmer and founder of Blue Sky Ranch. Hi, Julia. Hi, Simi. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. And you? I am excellent, thank you. Now, I'm I'm glad that we're talking about this because I feel like this is one of those areas that really seem to be growing. And is that the case, Julia? Like, are more and more people interested in where their meat comes from? Definitely. I mean, people are more and more interested in where their food's coming from across the board uh, as we see the effects of climate change really starting to hit home um, and affect people directly. And how did you get into doing this? Oh, boy. Uh, I kind of stumbled into this by accident. It started with backyard chickens and got out of control really quickly um, (laughs) with with my own family just wanting to take more control over where our food came from. So you had backyard chickens and then you rented out a a piece of land to do some gardening? Yeah, we, uh, we rented a piece of land down in South Burnaby, actually. 
Um, and it, it came with uh, a very large complement of terrible weeds. And researching climate-friendly ways to deal with that, we came to the conclusion that a couple of pigs was the best way to deal with that. And so we started uh, rooting up the, the weeds with these pigs and had the added benefit of bacon that fall. Wow. Okay. And so you, were you learning all of this as you went along? Uh, a lot of it, yeah. I was also uh, I was at UBC at the time and decided to, for one of my uh, courses to take a directed study in permaculture at the UBC farm. And so uh, that's where a lot of that came from as well. Okay. And so what did you find? As you were growing, did you find that more and more people were interested in this too? Definitely. More and more people want to know that the way their food is being raised is in line with their personal values and goals. And the meat tends to, to be a little more complicated for some people. We, we, there's a lot of messaging out there that eating meat is bad for the environment. When in fact, it's, as we say, it, it, it's not the cow, it's the how. I mean, there was a time back in the day when there were just as many ruminants wandering this continent, only they were bison and elk, and we didn't have an emissions problem back then. And so we have to look at what changed. And uh, it's not the ruminants, it's how we're managing them. And in fact, they can be a really, really important part of mitigating climate change. In what way? Well, for example, um, if we take them and put them into tiny spaces, on dirt and off pasture and feed them lots of grain, that isn't helping to build soil and isn't helping to sequester carbon. Whereas if we have them out on the range, where incidentally most cattle are most of their lives, um, we manage that range really well. We rotate them through pastures so that they're in a smaller area for a shorter period of time. So they're grazing that grass down and then moving on to the next pasture before it can get overgrazed. That allows the roots to slough off into the soil, more carbon going into the soil. The animals are fertilizing the soil as they go, much like they used to when we were using, when it was bison and elk. Right. Would you say that your farm is focused on quality over quantity? Absolutely. And I mean, it's it, interesting times how economy and environment collide here. Um, you know, who can afford millions of acres of farmland these days? And so it, it's really in people's economic interests that we manage the land that we do have access to better. We need to be able to produce better quality in smaller areas. And the byproduct of it, that just happens to be an improvement in uh, methane and greenhouse gas emissions. So as your other job is president of the Small Scale Meat Producers Association. Have those numbers been growing? I'm actually the executive director now. I've taken a leave of absence from the board to manage a project, but yes, I'm still there. And um, yeah, numbers are growing. Uh, interest in our organization is growing and interest in adopting these sorts of practices is growing. So what qualifies uh, a producer as a small scale producer? Well, that's an interesting question and it's very hard to define, but essentially most producers in British Columbia are small scale. I mean, when we're talking about cattle, for instance, I mean, the average herd size uh, is 20, 20 head. And so we really, most of us really are small scale producers. 
Uh, we tend to be defined um, generally as most of our members tend to be direct marketing right to their consumers. And so that that's kind of a defining point for our our membership, but not always. Okay. So what do you do on your farm? Like what kind of products do you have available? So we do primarily hogs and beef. And uh, I'm fortunate where I'm located in that I'm able to use uh, some community range. So my cattle are out spring, summer, and fall on Crown Land. Uh, So uh, we move our cattle around from pasture to pasture. It's just a larger area than if it was on my own personal farm. But it's the same practices that we're we're seeing. We've used the the hogs on our own farm to... uh, like on our original farm in Burnaby, we're in, in the Nicola Valley now, to to take care of really brushy, weedy areas. We can put the hogs in there, they get it all out, and then I seed and I, I've got nice grass growing now. Oh, that is and so then, nice. So yeah, I, I guess my question well. as well here, Julia, is like when, when you run out of product, you run out of product. It's not like you're not, not going to grow more. So you must be very limited in how much you can provide. So do people have to learn to really be active about looking for the right kind of, of food? Well, it it is important that you, I mean, you can't just go to the, I can't go to to like the vending machine in my field and pull out a pork chop for you, right? And so it's important for consumers who are interested in supporting these types of farms and getting these types of products to understand that it's going to be a little bit of a learning curve for them as well. Um, You know, it, it takes me a year to produce a pork chop and even longer to produce a steak. And so planning in advance, getting your order in in advance. And yes, I'm going to sell out long before we actually process these animals. So it is a bit of an adjustment for people to get used to working with farms like these, but it definitely benefits everybody. And you're going to save a bit of money over buying it at the grocery store and you know where your meat's coming from and how it was raised. And that money stays in the local economy too. So how can people, like if they're listening to this going, you know what, I would like to do this. This is how I want to stock my freezer. Where should somebody start? Well, I mean, local farmers markets are a good place to connect with local farmers. Um, the farmers market website, uh, you can certainly come to our website at uh, smallscalemeat.ca and we can try and connect you with a local producer in your area. Um, Facebook, social media, I mean, most of these farms, um, we do a lot of our marketing through social media. So we're, we're not hard to find. Well, that's good because I think people will have a lot of questions. And Julia, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks, Simi. And best of luck. That's Julia Smith. Um, She's with the Small Scale Meat Producers Association, but also the farmer and founder of Blue Sky Ranch. And yes, their products sell out quickly. And that's the thing. Farms are doing this these days where you can very locally go to visit a farm and buy meat products directly from that farm, see the animals, see what's going on, have that connection But it also means that you have to plan ahead because, as she said, she can't just go to the vending machine and get you more. You have to know what you want. You have to order it. You have to get it. And you have to plan for it, essentially. And that is the latest edition of our farming series, Keep It Local.